This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? I'm ready. Listen, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. And I'm psyched to be talking to my friend Justin Morell of Morell Metalsmiths. But before we talk to Justin, we got to talk to you about our sponsor, Axe Wax. Axe Wax is an all natural food safe wax for your axe, for your hammers, for your steel, for your knives. I just finished up some knives and I threw some Axe Wax on the handles. I love it. It's great and it's food safe and it is nice, especially if you're making culinary stuff, to be able to offer. Something food safe without any petroleum products in your, you know, in your, in your stuff to your customers. So if you go to axwax.us and put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you get 10% off your order. They're a great company. They've been supporting this podcast, and I'm very grateful to them. Without any further ado, my friend Justin Morell is here. Justin is the president of the New England Blacksmiths up in Massachusetts. He is, he comes from a family, a generational family of blacksmiths, and I love everything that they're doing. Justin, how are you? Doing great. That was a, that was a good story. I didn't want to interrupt really, you. I was really no, I was, no, I was enjoying I'm, hearing I'm really you talk about me. I was like, hey, that sounds good. <laughs> we're gonna talk about <laughs> we're gonna talk about you, Justin. I actually, Justin, I met Justin a number of years ago. Um, my daughter was going to summer camp in uh, Massachusetts. No, in uh, New Hampshire. He says New Hampshire. Are you bordering New Hampshire? Yeah, Vermont. Yeah, we're pretty close. New Hampshire, close enough that you got off the highway. Well, it was very close because we, on the way up, I was talking to our friend, our mutual friend Jesse Savage, and he said, "Oh, you got to stop by and see the Morels over at Morel Metalsmiths." And my wife and I, this was on the way. I don't know. My kid wasn't in the car because she would have been too nervous. Yeah, no, getting ready to go to camp. I was going to say, I think you were on your way to pick her up. And then we went up to. We were on their way to pick her up, and we were on, we were getting close to the the Bridge of Flowers, the town where they have the Bridge of Bridge of Flowers. Is that what it's called? Yeah, that's Something. what it's called, Shelburne Falls. And we stopped in. It, that's right, and we got to meet you and your beautiful shop. And what I re, and then I I think I bought a big sledgehammer from you and a couple of things. We had a really good conversation. And one of the things about Morel Metalsmiths is it reminded me of the old days at the Center for Metal Arts when I was there because it's this big beautiful barn, and then there's this. Uh, it's a, it's this, uh, there's a showroom and then there's this, the forging area and the fabrication area. And I just, I had such a good feeling when I came to visit you. Thanks. I really like my shop too. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great shop. Um, and one of the things that is interesting, the, the whole idea that your, you know, your father started it and you and your brother taking it over your brother, Evan, who thank you, Evan, for, uh, doing all the technical work yes. to get uh, to get uh, Justin with me that is not my um, that is not I my love thing the fact that's fine you're a blacksmith that's <laughs> see that's what we have to get into in this whole thing is that there's definitely without question there's this um, there's a real how do you deal with the modern day blacksmith and uh, especially in this day and age it's it's a fascinating thing so how have you been uh you know I've been I've been good uh, this COVID thing's really it's treated me pretty well uh, to be honest, I know that a lot of people had it really bad. I know you had it really bad. Um, but you know, I got six weeks off to spend with my family and I've never been able to do that with my kids. So, you know, like I did some projects around the house and I built a tree house for my kids and it's just, it was, 
It was glorious. It was really nice. <laughs> you know, it's there's a lot of good. There's going to be a lot. I think down the line, I think you're going to see a lot of good and bad stories that have come out of this. Oh, for sure. Um, actually, it was just my my good friend uh, Nico Tavernisi, who we used to do the Downward Spiral podcast. He mm-hmm. works in 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 Hollywood. He stopped by the shop today. And he said, "Filming Hollywood filming now is has been dead." And he said hmm. to me that the only people who are filming now are streaming services because they got content they need to fill. All of the um, the movie houses are they, they. He just got off this film in Boston, and he said it, the expense of doing COVID protection, COVID testing, and all the COVID stuff for this one movie was thirty five million dollars. Oh my gosh! For just the people and the testing, because they had this incredible protocol. He would call me up, and he had to sit in the car for two hours, and you know, it was like the the protocols for some of these movies were so expensive right. that it became imp- it did, all the movie houses just decided, or the movie companies decided, let's just kind of hold off because that's just too big of a nut to make these movies. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah, and I think that guys like you, guys like me. Uh, well, he subsequently he ended up saying a lot of movie people um, r- appreciated it because it gave them a chance to kind of it was like a forced vacation, but everybody at the same time. It wasn't like you're taking six weeks off and then he's taking six weeks. Off. Everyone, you know, out of different times, everyone's, you know, s- you know, taking a break at the same time, and it actually right. became a lot easier for a lot of these places to come, these you know creative people to kind of like recharge yeah i mean you find a lot of times when you when you take time off you feel bad for taking time off because you there's things that you should be doing and to have it be that you know you just everybody's doing it everybody has to have time off everybody's got this time off it was it was a whole it was you're able to relax and just be Hmm. i mean relax in that you know you had to stay home you couldn't go anywhere so relax there was a lot of stress involved in that relaxed time but at the same time, it was like, there's, there's nothing else I could be doing. And, and so you just, you guys just like shut the shop down. I did. I'd, and to be honest, uh, beginning of 2020, end of 2019, beginning of 2020, uh, we were dead. Like we had no work coming through the door. And it was like, it was, really? yeah, I mean, it was a little scary. And, you know, we had one project that we were working on and, and we were just like, Hey, okay. We just snapped, we just shut down for six weeks. Sounds good. Let's do that. Was it, was it because of, there wasn't construction? I mean, one of the things that uh, Morel Metalsmith does is like a traditional blacksmithing, but tons of railings, yeah, lots of uh, beautiful railings and stuff that's for new construction. Right. Uh, so it, was it the reason behind is because they stopped construction? Yeah, it just seemed like there was just like nobody was building anything or for whatever reason. Mm. And, and then coming out of, you know, coming out of that six weeks, I mean, we've been flat out ever since. You know, we've we've got hmm. been doing lots of railings and fireplace screens, and you know this is the the first time I've shipped a fireplace screen across the country, and that's when I realized how expensive plywood was right now. <laughs> we bought, <laughs> well, I bought. I, this doesn't surprise me. No, I bought a I bought a please, four by eight sheet of. I'm sorry for interrupting. That's all right. I bought a four by eight sheet of 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 half inch sheathing to to create a, a crate for this fire screen. And uh, 
It was almost 60 bucks. I was like, that's a $20 piece of plywood that I just spent 60 bucks on. It's just, it was shocking. So I've been hearing that a lot. And I obviously, I mean, I'm not buying a lot of plywood, so it's not really affecting me at all, but I would I would imagine only because I like the I love the idea that people were just like roaring back into it because I know for a fact where I live the real estate is like such a crazy thing right now because mm-hmm. everyone's trying to go and leave these metropolitan areas right and what's what's happening is is the problem is is the realtors are running out of listings because they are as soon as something something goes up, it immediately sells, and then obviously people are taking their money and they're, they're buying stuff. So yeah. I'm really grateful. It is a, it is a great because for me, which is different from you. I mean, I got out of the lifting over 25 pounds, you know, years ago. I mean, I was when I was at you know Center for Metal Arts, we made railings, and all mm. I was doing was you know humping steel all the time and to the saws and you know just lifting all the time. Yeah, I. When I started to do the, my the knife business, never clo- never got slow, because people are at home and you're the, these objects that are very approachable. That's the one thing that makes me, I love I love traditional ornamental ironwork. I love doing it. I love railings. I even love doing the spacing of railings. I love punching holes for the pickets. I loved everything about making rails. But it always was just along the lines of, I felt like, I, I would imagine that if you're in that game, especially when construction stops and the bills still have to be paid, what do you do? Yeah. What do you do? You know, I, and, and it was like, I have, I have friends that do, that do more work like in the city. He does a lot of work down in New York, down in Boston and you know, it, everything shut down, but all of his all of the contractors that he was working for still wanted him to keep his deadlines. It was like, right. How am I supposed to do that? My shop is closed, you know, but I just, I, did you think, did you, I'm sorry for you were saying, no, 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 you're good. I was at any point, you know, when construction slowing down and I know these railing jobs too, they're not quick turnarounds. Mm-mm. And, you know, I know that you have like three or four people at your shop, you know, your brother and then like one or two other people. Yeah. Do you, do you have a, at any point, are you thinking, well, what am I going to do to make sure these people can keep working? Or do you think, well, I, mean, I know that you do also teach classes and the classes are out. Right. So what did you, did you, what did you, what were you thinking? Were you thinking, well, what are we going to do? Or, oh, I was thinking, you know, are we going to, are we going to be here in another three months? Because, you know, I'm trying to keep my employee paid. And, you know, I'm not able to pay myself at that point because there was just not enough work for that. So, you know, you, you, you got to make sure that your employees, that, that's one of those things when you take on an employee, you, you take on that responsibility. And uh, so to make sure that he was paid, I wasn't taking a paycheck, which meant that my family wasn't getting paid. And it was, it was getting to the point where I was like, you know, I don't know, am I going to have to, am I, am I folding? Like, what am I doing here? And, uh, you know, thankfully we didn't have to get to that point because we got shut down and. When we when we opened back up, we were we were gangbusters. So, you know, thankfully, we uh, did we can you move take forward. advantage of any of the PPP loans or anything? Oh uh, like yeah, that? we're actually we actually we took a, took advantage of the first one, and that was a you know a scary undertaking because you're you know you're taking on debt that they're saying they might forgive. So it was like okay, so we're right. taking on this debt that we're now going to be responsible for unless they forgive it. So that was you know that. It was great, but it was also stressful. 
but then they forgave it. So we went there, you know, they offered a second round and I was like, well, you know, if they're going to forgive the first round, they're probably going to forgive the second round. So we moved forward on the second round and we're in the middle of that right now. Um, we also took advantage. There was a couple of small business loans out there that allowed us to consolidate some of the debt that we were carrying onto a very low interest rate small business loan um, through the whatever the development corporation or whatever the thing is through the government. I don't remember what it's called. Um, this is the part about being in business that you don't realize. I think that there's, the, I, I appreciate the fact that you, what you said when you said, um, you know, taking responsibility for your, your employees. I remember when, uh, when I had a guy here, I was very much along the lines of, I have to make sure that, you know, I got to fulfill my, my, my obligation to this kid. I really appreciate that because I had been in situations where I was hired and then they realized that maybe they'd overstepped their bounds or overstepped their, you know, financial abilities. And they let me go unceremoniously on a Friday, you know, <laughs> after we finished installing, after we finished installing a job, P.S. So like they got, <laughs> squeezed all the juice out of me and let me right. ride. Yeah. I remember when I had uh, Carl here, I, he was a great kid. He, he only was going to work for the summer and I wanted to make sure we were paying him because he had to go off to college. And, and I remember having to work Saturdays just to kind of make sure that we were, we were paying him and paying for his, you know, the, paying the government for, you know, his, you know, for unemployment, uh, unemployment and all that. And yeah. it was like, it was, I felt the responsibility. Was, there were Saturdays where I was just like, I'm working here for Carl. But at the same time, I was just like, because, because that's what you do. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, and, <laughs> I, and, you know, like that, I'm, I'm grateful that I only have like, yeah, my brother's, my brother's family. So that's, it's a, a different dynamic. Right. It's a different relationship. Um, I still want to make sure he's paid, but you know, cause that keeps him happy and keeps him coming back. But, yeah. you know, I only have one employee that I'm, that I'm responsible for. And I'm like, okay, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a lower threshold that I have to make sure that I have, but it's still like, you know, you talk about having to pay the government you think about how much over what you're paying your employee, you're actually paying to the government out of that's right your bank account as well. And it's like, it's a much larger number. And I don't think a lot of people, you know, realize it's that. Staggering. Yeah. Yeah. It's staggering. It's staggering. To the point where that's why I had to work Saturdays is because like I had to pay basically pay pay for the for the government. But the I I the, when you were talking about your brother Evan and having to you know there's an expression in the restaurant business called family holdback mm. where you like you know the the all the staff gets the you know we we don't or or like if you have people that you, you're very close with and maybe you're a little bit short on food family holdback means they take the dive you know. Um, and one of the things, actually talking to a number of restaurateurs, and, and this is like, this is this is all over the place. I'm glad that it's not happening with you. You have a tighter, uh, your business is a tighter community, but the biggest problem with the PPE, the PPP loans in the restaurant business is I had friends who were doing everything they could to keep their staff because, you know, with a restaurant, I mean, you really need all your staff. You need your cooks and you need your, your, uh, your waiters and your servers and everybody. And my one friend, John, was doing everything he could. He felt it was like a badge of courage to make sure that his employees were being paid. 
Mm-hmm. And then they all started. They all decided, and he was he was applying for the PPP loans. He was on top of it. He was proud. It was a it was a sense of pride that he was able to keep the restaurant open and play pay his guys, his people. Yeah. And then they all started taking unemployment, and then they all started getting that extra stim, stimulus mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. And now nobody wants to go back to work. No. Nobody. It's cheap. It's 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 better. And this is an industry wide. I was just talking to a friend of mine. Uh, Mike over at uh, Finn and Brew, who is one of the best chefs in the area. This restaurant mm-hmm. is the top of the line in this whole area. He can't get cooks. He can't get cooks because they don't want to work. So the people that he's getting are people who are like, I don't want to sit home. I want to work. So he's actually getting a smaller amount of employees, but they're better because they kind of want they want to be there. Yeah, they're you a know? little bit more on fire. They got a you know fire under their butt because they don't because they're tired of being at home. Which is a huge well, thing. I mean, or they're just one. Yeah. It, but they're opportunities now because right. because all of a sudden maybe your your line cook might get a get in a better position out of di- mm. out of the dire straits and you're going to get a better shot. Right. But for you, for you, you know, and it, what's different because of Merle Metalsmiths is because you have so many. I mean, you have there's such of there's so many things to learn and, and blacksmiths mm. of people who want to be blacksmiths. It isn't like being. It isn't like a job where you just sh- you just clock in and clock out. I mean, there are things. I mean, there's there's generations of information for you to learn at a place like your place, which is just like staggeringly amazing. I can't imagine anybody being like, ah, you know what, Justin can ride the pine. I'll take this stimulus check and I'll watch some more uh, Survivor. You know, right? Watch Tiger King. Um, right, right, Tiger King. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, I mean, if you consider Nick, my employee, he's he took his first class from me when he just after he turned 13. Um, He was a homeschooled kid in the area and his parents worked it into his curriculum that he would come to the shop. It was like three days a week after school and he did whatever I needed him to do for for the rest of his time in school. And then after school, he, he was like, you know, I'd really like to to work here if you, if you're interested. And, uh, so I put him on and, you know, he's 20 now and wow. And he's still like, they, like there's a lot he can do by himself now, but there's still, we're still learning. Like he's still, he's still putting oh. knowledge in all these years later. And it's, yeah, I can't tell you how many, how many times we've had, we had somebody that comes into the shop. They're like, Oh, gung ho. And they're here for a year and then they're gone. And, you know, all of that time that that employee an employer invests into that person and oh. then to have them go away, you know, it's expensive. It's expensive to me oh my to God. hire somebody and have them just go away. So I've been you really fortunate are with this guy. Thousand percent right. You know, when I got the job at the Center for Mental Arts and Ed Mack hired me. There weren't, and I had a, you know, I had an art degree, but I was also welding for a while. A MIG welding isn't like, I mean, let's be honest, MIG welding. Well, welding with training sense. wheels? I mean, struck, I mean, yeah, I mean, I used to call it, I used to call it, what did I call it? It was like, it was kind I mean, you know, I used to make jokes up to friends of mine who said, I'm the best MIG welder you're ever going to meet. I'm like, yeah, well, that's, I mean, I think you'd be surprised. It's like, it's not really, I mean, they, whoever created the MIG welder was just like, there is a untapped stupid market that we can really tap into yep. and we can really make this a lot easier for people because arc welding and TIG welding is just too hard. That's right. No offense to people who make weld. 
But I remember when Ed Mack hired me, there was definitely this feeling, and, and our the lead man at the time, John Ledford, he kind of took me under his wing as his, like, number two guy. There was definitely this a bit, this feeling of, like, when we train you, we don't want you to leave. And one of the things that I got to take all the classes, pay, I was paid to take the classes, but there was this very, there was, like, a, me walking would have been a very expensive uh, situation and I ended up yeah. staying for six years so five six years and I I find it I find it I think you're a thousand percent right because you guy your guy Nick is like kind of like a young Alex Steele where he's in there from the beginning and he he becomes part of the family yeah and he has a a serious interest in learning this stuff because you have so many general you have like two generations of blacksmiths and, and the it's not like a it's not like guys it's Merle Bellsmith is not like a garage with a with a you know 25 little pound little giant it's this working giant fabrication shop and it's just like you walk in there and you're just like there is stuff to be learned yeah yeah and I you, know, you say so, you know, you're talking about the 25 pound little giant and you know in listening to your podcast and listening to people talk you know these different guys that have that have started in blacksmithing or bladesmithing you know not that long ago really that are doing amazing stuff um and they talk about you know the the work that they're doing and and it occurred to me that you know I I grew up in a shop with a power hammer I've never known a shop without a power hammer which is pretty crazy yeah it's pretty crazy right super like, crazy super I, crazy we're going to talk about that now because right. you i'm and i'm envious Were you did i interrupt you i'm sorry no 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 i'm envious not jealous i don't like to say jealous some right. people say jealous i always feel like there's a little bit too much resentment and jealousy for me to be jealous i'm envious of you in the regards of how you had this relationship with your father, you and your brother have this relationship with your father, and you were taken under his wing and developed all the skills that you have, plus there's more to be had, and then you've taken over Morel Middlesmith. When your dad started, let's just get back to your, your dad, Lee, mm-hmm. who is also the president of Abana. Right. I got the, pre- the, the what a family. I mean, you have like, you guys have a chokehold <laughs> on, I mean, chokehold's not a bit of a strong word. Uh, but we'll go with chokehold, that's a, fine. Quite a, he had a chokehold on the <laughs> in the big groups in the United States of blacksmithing. When your dad, what did your, how did your dad get into blacksmithing? Oh, so the backstory of Lee Morrell is he grew up on a horse farm um, in middle of Vermont, north, uh, southern Vermont, uh, and being you know it was a it was a breeding and training horse farm. His brother. It was definitely he was the the face of the operation, so to speak. So he did a lot of the training and such. And my dad, so my dad had to figure out his own place in that. And as a result, he took on the ferrying, farriering, shoeing horses um, aspect right. of of that <laughs> whole. With you. Um, so he he started out as a as a horseshoer, and he did. He had a crazy good business in Southern Vermont, um, right up till 1981, 82, uh, when he was spending more time on his back in bed because his back wouldn't support him anymore than he was working 
under horses. Mm. Uh, and he'd, he, he, he's like, it occurred to me that I, I can't, I can't do this. I can't keep doing this and support my family. So he had to figure out another way to use his skills to support his family. Um, and it was, so I guess it was 79 was the first NEB meet that he went to, the first New England blacksmiths meet that he went to. Um, and the, the horseshoeing community at the time is very, was very cutthroat. Like you didn't share your, you didn't share your yes. tricks. You didn't, you didn't help each other. Like it's, it's very much different now. I mean, you hear like Ben Snoor and those guys talk about this and, so. and they're like, no, if, if somebody's I don't out, think so yeah, I don't think so. If somebody's no, oh, they, yes, they yes. were like, if somebody's out, then you help them. You pick up their slack. You, you take care of their horses. But back then That's it right. was not That's like right. that. Um, and he went to a New England blacksmith's meet and there's these guys like, you know, he talking to Noel Putnam and, and, uh, Dave Court from over in New Hampshire and these guys are, you know, they're sharing their tricks in front of people. Like they're showing people how they do it easier and better. And it blew his mind. And the two, like uh, Nell Putman and Dave Court were the two that, that both showed him that, you know, this is, these are skills that he had that he could use to make money and that he could make money at this. Like there was a whole, a whole nother hmm. aspect of blacksmithing um, that, that he could uh, glean money from to support his family. Um, and one of the, one of the great, one of the greatest benefits that I've seen from my dad starting as a horseshoer is he can look at something from across the room and tell you if it's flat and true. And most blacksmiths can't make things hmm. straight to begin with, but he could look at it. He walked right. through the shop and be like, Hey, you've got something wrong with that railing over there. And a lot of times it really piss you off. Because he just finished the damn railing. And he'll walk through the shop and go, something's wrong with that railing. And you look at it and you go, God damn it, he's right. But that's, you know, that's just that that trained eye to be able to make sure that your shoe is flat so that you're not hurting a horse. Like that's that's, right. that's a big thing. And he that, that was one of the big yeah. things that he carried on from, from shoeing horses into the blacksmithing that I think really really helped, uh, his, his career. And, you know, we, we, when my dad was running the shop, we have a very colonial straight lines, clean finishes type work, um, like early colonial. So everything was very like true and straight and, you know, uh, you know, I've been trying to, to branch out from that, but it's still something that we do. And it it just really lended itself to, to his eye, you know, to be able to see things that are straight. Do you think that, I mean, that has to do with also the, where you are. I mean, Massachusetts, you know, rural area in Massachusetts, there is more of that style, that colonial style. I mean, that's yeah. really, I mean, you're in the birthplace of the colonial style. Right. So, I mean, it's not a huge surprise. Yeah, that's true. So what were the things that he was doing when he first started, when he started as a blacksmith? I mean, what, what do you think he really wanted to do or what was he doing? Um, his early work was like hooks and hangers and lighting. That was like, that was it. And he had a partnership hmm. with a, with a guy named Ian Eddy, who is still smithing in Saxons river, Vermont and doing a great job for himself. Um, and the two of them, they started this business where they were, they were both doing hooks and hangers and 
candle chandeliers were really what they were doing and just doing craft shows at that point. Cause that was, you know, it was the eighties and everybody was doing craft shows. Um, and everything was light and everything's no longer the, no longer on your back because you're doing small things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He did what you did. He's like, I'm going to make things everything 25 pounds or less. That is like a giant part of the why I like knife making. I'm never lifting any. I mean, I'm li- I'm never lifting anything over 25 pounds. I'm like gr- my back feels great. I don't have to lift anything. I- I've been down that road of those 20 foot lengths of you know tubing and yeah, oh yeah. I don't want to do that anymore. No, it's too much. Every now and then I'll do a job and I look so, at I'll look at the guys in the shop and I'll go, you know what? We could have been jewelers. We could have done jewelry, and this would yeah. be a lot lighter. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's dude, that's totally true. I mean, that is a that's a fact. I mean, I, I you know the funny thing about blacksmiths and bladesmiths and everybody, bladesmiths, a lot of bladesmiths and knife makers, really have very little, uh, with the exception of a number of them, mm-hmm. they don't really kind of go into the. I mean, the idea, and I talk to so many of them, either on knife talk or. On, or on, on this, there, there's, there's such a lack of understanding of the broad, the, all the different things you can make, and it, to the point where I make all these jokes and I say to a lot of these guys, you can't just all make bottle openers and that's it. I mean, part of blacksmithing is that you, I get asked these bladesmithing questions, and I'm just like, if you learned how to forge in general, you'd have a better understanding on how to pull a heel down for an integral knife. And it's like when I made the transition, it was much more. And I, when I talked to John Ariani about this too, it be, and Cliff Dufton, we've all, you know, had more of a blacksmithing background and it was very easy to make these, you know, uh, volume changes, these mass changes mm, because yeah. we've done it before making power hammer leaves or, or whatever you kind of understand where, how the material is going to move, which I think that there's a lot of, there's a lack of that under that breadth, uh, that uh, broad understanding of how it works. But what what I would so so he started to do those lighting and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And how did he make the transition? Because I know originally you guys were here. He was in Vermont. How did he make the transition over to your giant shop in in, in Massachusetts? Well, the giant shop is a result of um, of me deciding that I wanted to do this for a career. Um, I think I, had I not pushed or had I not suggested that this was what I wanted to do, he would have just finished out his career in that little shop and not, he wouldn't have thought twice about it. It was a great shop. Um, but because he had that, the, the longevity, the, the somebody to take it over the somebody to leave it to, um, it, it meant that he could build on what he'd already been building on. Uh, so we made that transition, hmm. you know, it, it was, it was that, and the taxes in Vermont are ridiculous. And he had two pieces of property in the same town. We had, I think we had a total of three acres in, in Brattleboro and we moved to Massachusetts, built our shop here. He's got a house that's way bigger than the old house. And the taxes were a third, what they were in Brattleboro for 10 acres. Hmm. That's so, crazy. You know, it made that's that was a, that was a huge thing as well. So so the the having the shop and the house on the same property was a big a big motivator. Um the location we were at the old shop, while it was a, a nice shop, it was you know, when you're in business for 26 years and locals stop in and go, "I never knew you guys were here." That's it's not mm. really the thing that you want to hear. Um 
And right. and when we moved here to Massachusetts and we're on a route from like it's the shortcut to the ski areas for all of the people coming coming up from Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, they just come right by our shop. So we got a lot more walk in you know, out here in the country than we did in town in Brattleboro. Um, the, the other stimulator was the town of Brattleboro where we'd been for 26 years. Uh, we applied for a variance to expand our shop and the zoning board came out and took a look at our location and decided that not only would they not grant us the variance, but they were going to, they were going to fine us for outdoor storage of coal. So we had a great big coal pile out back and they were like, you know, you've been here for 20 years paying taxes and we're going to now fine you because we don't like what you're doing here. So we were like, okay, we're going to, we're going to get out of Dodge. And so we did. And the, the local, you know, the, the, the locals here in Colerain, they really like bent over backwards for, for us building the shop and bringing the commerce to this area. And, you know, we, my dad was influential in starting a, a self-guided craft tour here in town, um, which we're now in our 11th, 12th season, I think, this year, uh, with 15 different art, local artists that have been amazing. And, you know, the, the community that we have here has just been so much, so much warmer, so much more accepting. And, and you know, it's been, it was really a good move for us to move down here. Like I said, I don't think Absolutely. he would. I don't think he would have if, if it hadn't been for me wanting to take it over. So I want to. I can't. These these government people. I mean, it's like oh, it's ridiculous. What are you doing? Yeah. You have like this successful business that has like such a really. I don't. I do not understand how these local local governments operate. It's like this nonsense. It's just nonsense. Yeah. You, I don't want to. I don't want. I seem to be like I'm like anti-government. <laughs> this is an anti-government podcast. I'm not really anti-government, but it's like, how can you do that, Brattleboro? Get your act together. Are you crazy? You just lost out one of the you know the two presidents of two of the biggest organizations in blacksmithing. You stupid. Yep. So, how did when you how did you make that? I love the fact that you your dad made the decision when you were younger to keep doing it because. That's just such a huge, that's such a huge amount of trust in yeah. a child. Yeah. In a child. In a child. So you were 13 was, when you first went into the shop, right? Uh, I, I was 11 when I first, when he started paying me. That was my first, I was 11 when I started getting paid. And it was like a dollar a day and I was sweeping the floor and emptying slack tubs. Um, and uh, it was 13. I was in, I was in high school and uh and that's when I was like, you know, I think this is what I want to do. And he was very, very good about he he never pushed. He said he always said every time I mentioned it, he said, if you change your mind and you want to do something else, that's fine. Do that. Um, so there was not there wasn't that pressure to to continue once I'd made the decision. He didn't hold my feet to the fire every time I turned around. And I mean, honestly, I was a I was a crappy employee for a very long time. Why is Much, that? Oh, I just, I, I mean, it's your family. I show up late and I take a long lunch and dollar it was just, days. you know, it was that. I mean, it was expect, that stuff. What, right. What do you expect? What do you expect for a dollar a day? Yeah. I mean, come on. I mean, well, I mean, no, this, get, is, this is later. I was being paid more money at this point. 
But oh, okay. Right. But at the same time, I was, I was wondering like, how long you had the dollar a day. <laughs> I I had to fight for every raise, though. I'll tell you. <laughs> but that I mean that is in, that is I mean that is an amazing amazing. I mean, he took his life, mm-hmm. and he had this opportunity. This young child makes this, you know, a thirteen-year-old. You know, you know. Sometimes you just like, all right, you know. Well, I know you want to be an astronaut, but let's, <laughs> let's just let's dial you know, it down a bit. Sometimes some things don't. Sometimes these things don't happen. But for the, to the, the, the his ability to adjust and give you that opportunity, because you have other. He's got other kids too. You got a sister and a brother, right? There's five the of us. The fact that he was able to. There's five of us. There's five of There's you. There's five of us. Yeah, I've got, I've got an older sister, who's, well, I won't say how old she is. Um, she has a, she's got a bridal salon. She actually worked. She worked with me for a while here in this location, and then got into the bridal industry. Uh, I have a younger brother, Sean, who is a computer engineer for BAE, British Aeronautic Engineering. Um, and it's wicked, wicked smart. Um, and then my brother, Evan, who works with me, uh, he, uh, he's like, geez, he went away to, he joined the army or the, the air, the air force. Sorry. He's going to kill me now. He joined the air force. And when he got back from the air force, he decided he was going to do something different with his life. And he joined, he, he got a job at a, a car dealership. And uh, he lasted all of a month at the car dealership before he called me. And he's like, hey, can I have a job? So I hired him Ugh, at that point. But then my my little sister, Erin, who she is a, uh, she's a cowgirl. She's been, like, she started riding horses when she, gosh, she must have been like 10 before that, she was teaching her teaching her dog to lunge, which is where they run them around in circles. I didn't know that, so I'll just explain that. And now she uh, she runs a, a business training people who training horses and people who ride them. So that's the, the five of the us. The fact that he There's... was able to, the fact that he was able to take his business, yeah, and then make the decision that my young son wants to take it over. Let's keep rolling was a real act of faith, especially considering you said you were a lousy employee. I mean, my father offered me, uh, I was going to work with him. My father's a winemaker, and there was a very good chance that I was going to take over the winery. But there were factors around his life that wanted me out. There were separate, I was, uh, there was, there was, I was, uh, my father was easily uh, influenced, mm-hmm. and uh, people in his orbit wanted to, you know, consolidate power. And I was really kind of not, I was really pushed away, pushed away completely. And it was one of those things that I always felt very like, it was very hurtful to me. Mm. And the fa- I, I'm, I feel very warm about the fact that your father was just like, ah, Justin wants to take the place over. Well, let's make this place something worth taking over. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's very, very, very thoughtful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And it's like you said before, it is a, spectacular shop it really is an amazing it's amazing shop, shop. <laughs> not to not so to brag what but point, at what point no it's an amazing <laughs> shop i mean I, that's the first place i ever saw a nimba anvil a couple of nimble you got a couple of nimba no, I've got one. i've never seen one in person and 
Oh yeah, one. Just, and yeah. I I just remember I just remember seeing, especially you know, you and I were talking. My wife was there, and then your dad came up, and we I, there was just a very very. I felt like this very the warmth of the fact that you know your whole family's involved, and it's just this a really kind of a nice situation. At what point? I mean, obviously. Is he sending you off to learn? I mean, obviously, it's not just you're not learning just from him, right? I mean, he he must need to he must know that you need to be like educated off the out of the out of the house. Yes, yes, and that's actually exactly how you know it's almost exactly how he put it. Um, he didn't he didn't want to clone. He wanted to to have me branch out and figure out my own style. Um, he when I was a toddler. Well, probably not quite. I was running around at a New England Blacksmith Conference. Um, it was up in Maine. I don't remember where. I remember the guy's shop, but I can't remember who it was. Um, and he was good friends with a guy named Lance Cloutier. And Lance Cloutier had a shop in Freiburg, Maine. And Lance had a couple of daughters. And he said, hey, when our kids are old enough, if they're both, if they're interested, let's you know, let's each train one of our children. And fa- fast forward, I was twenty, and Lance Cloutier had a shop. He had a shop in Tyler, Texas, at the time. Uh, he had, he decided to drive to California, got halfway, and turned south, um, and landed in Tyler, Texas, and started a shop. You know, just moved to shop there. So I went down there for a couple months, and I worked with him. Um, he had mostly his retail or his wholesale shop was candle lighting and wine racks. Uh, and he did a small amount of, of custom pieces. So while I was down there, I was helping with his, with his wholesale line and we were building a 10 by 10, uh, Rose Arbor for his chiropractor. And I know it was his chiropractor because he traded for the job. <laughs> this is this huge, this huge <laughs> arbor. And he, you know, here I am. He, I come down there to help him out with this project and he's got it halfway finished and he's blown his back out as we do. And so I, I basically I had to like, he, we, he worked with me to help me finish the project for him, uh, which was, it was pretty awesome. Like it was a really fun job. Um, and then from there, uh, my dad hooked me up with a guy named Joe Pahosky and Joe Pahosky had a, a shop in Salado, Texas. Uh, Joe Pahosky's shop was, I want to say it was about half again, bigger than the shop that I'm in. So roughly a 4,000 square foot shop. 4,500 square foot shop down in Texas. Um, and he did like really, really nice architectural work for, uh, this was like the dot-com boom. So it was all of the houses in right. Dallas and up in, I want to say Montana. He was doing a couple of projects in Montana while I was there. Um, like the hand textured copper plate, uh, vent covers or hood hoods for over the over the range in the kitchen and massive railings and things like that that's the type of work that he did um which was so amazing to watch to to be a part of that like i learned so much at his shop 
um, about about building railings and you know not not just straight railings but curved railings with you know the how the compound curve works um, and and building those and how to set them up so that you could that you can then do infill in them. Um, so I got to do a couple projects beyond. We did a fitting in Dallas, um, which was pretty amazing. Like that, the construction that was going on in Dallas back in back in those days was just mind blowing. It was incredible the the houses that were being built. So, and then, and then One there was things. Of, and then there well, was supposed sorry. to be. Then there was supposed to be a couple other people that I was that I was supposed to work with. Um, but when I got back from Texas. Uh, my grandmother ended up, she was diagnosed with cancer and I ended up having to take, I helped take care of her and it kind of, it stalled the process mm. of me learning and I never got back. We never jumped back into it after she passed away, but, uh, like it is what it is. You know, I was glad that I, I was glad but that I had that time. time. At the same time, the fact that your dad knew, all right, I want to, I want my kid to that's the thing a lot a lot of people don't have especially now mm-hmm. like one of the things that i've always i've been fascinated about in general and it, and it comes cooking and blacksmithing i find to be almost very similar whereas you know when you go to culinary school and you talk about food history and you talk about american food they can if you talk to scholars mm-hmm. they, they only consider true american cuisine to be uh indigenous American cuisine to be Cajun food. And yeah. that's a questionable too. Acadia, right. Canadians, and then the Spanish influence and then the Caribbean influence. But with one of the things, the, the difference between Americans and like, say, let's say the French or whatever, is with cooking, there's this passing along of information. And what happens is, is you, you have this total understanding of cooking because it's been passed along for generations and generations. You know, there are recipes in, 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 in brasseries and cafes that are hundreds and hundreds of years old that haven't changed. Yeah. With blacksmithing, too, and it, as opposed to the United States where there isn't that, that history. And what I find interesting because of, you don't find that many generational families doing it is that's one of the reasons why blacksmithing has kind of fallen into the, onto the wayside in the United States because there wasn't this idea of passing along information, especially after the Industrial Revolution. And you got all these machinists, and all of a sudden you don't need the blacksmith at the Ford, you know, at the Ford plant anymore. And there isn't this passing along of information. And what I love the fact is, is your your father is doing what I was kind of hoping that other people would do would be passing the gener- passing the information on to you, but having the wherewithal to say, all right, listen, Justin's going to learn. He's going to learn how to make what I make, but he needs to learn how to make what other people make. And then that'll kind of broaden his in- understanding. You don't see that very often, especially with a young guy like you. And it's just very like, it's what you kind of hope for, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's one of those, it's one of those, it has to be like, it's two-sided like and 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 like i feel very i feel very fortunate that my dad did that for me but then i'm thinking about the you know the whole side of it where like i'm i made the decision to do this right but you know you see so often like a kid will make they'll be like hey i want to do this and their parents who are doing it they're like no no you need to go out and do something easier 
to make you more money, even though you think this will make you happy. Like they actually like the parent is the one that does a little bit of the pushing away instead of being like, okay, let's do this. And, and bringing them in to that, to that learning experience. But there is that give and take, obviously yeah. it's the, it has to be the perfect storm. It has to be, it has to be an organic decision. You yeah. know, there are people, yeah, I know my, uh, my old, my old lead man, John Ledford, my old lead man, John Ledford was his dad was a blacksmith and they really were very competitive with each other. It wasn't like, I think that it wasn't as like, I don't think it was as, and I won't, obviously I won't speak for him. I've been trying right. to get him on for, he's very, just talk about elusive. But it, I don't think it was, you know, it wasn't as like loving as, as, and kind of as it was with you. And it, it makes me wonder what you, when you came back from, from Texas, and I know you were, you know, good enough to take care of your grandmother and everything like that. Was there this kind of like, I feel, I almost feel like when you came back, you came to your dad and you just rolled out this big, you know, this big role and say, dad, this is what I learned how to do. And these are all these different things. And it's just such a kind of a neat idea. You mm. know? How did he receive your, your coming back? How did you receive your coming back? Uh, he's, gosh, it was a while ago. Um, yeah, I, as I remember it, he was like, from that point forward, he listened to my ideas more. I think is what huh. it was like, I mean, it was still it, like, it was always, it was always his shop right up till the point where I bought it. It was always his shop. And so when he had an idea, you basically had to make that the way he wanted it, which is, I mean, that's how you run a business. Right. Like you can't, you can't have too many cooks in the kitchen. Right. And, uh, right. So it was, it was after that point where I would be like, okay, but let's, Let's think about, like, what do you think about doing this? And there was more of an understanding of where I was coming from that allowed him to accept it, I think, at that point, as opposed to just being like, no, we're going to do it this way. And I mean, that still happened. There were still like t- points where he was like, no, this is, this is my vision for this. And we're still going to do it this way. It's a good idea, but we're going to do it this way. And, and I would have to, you know, I would have to accept that because that. You have to, you don't, you don't argue with the same time. He's giving you, but he's giving you, but he, but the fact that he is all of a sudden, he's just like, well, you know, let's, let's go that. The fact that he was able to kind of sit back and say, let's hear what you have to say is very, I mean, that's a, that's a real evolution in a relationship. Oh yeah. I mean, he, it seems to me that even when you were 13, he was expecting you to get to that point. I'm sure he was very, very like grateful for the fact that there was that um opportunity because i mean he's waiting you know he's 13 dad i don't take this shop over he's waiting for you to have these ideas and then he's waiting for for himself to be like i feel comfortable with justin making these decisions it's just very um it's i'm envious i'm envious of that you know yeah yeah and it was it was it was like you know he i was still mold he was still molding me i think is what it was and as a, you know, as a result, I had to be moldable. You have to, you know, once you decide you're no longer teachable, you're no longer any good as a student. I mean, I mean right. you have to, you have to be able to absorb the information that the master's giving you. And he, in this case, was the master. So, it, you know, it's, yeah, I guess that's, that's it. That's what I got for that. 
Well, when <laughs> so at this point, when is the part where I don't know wait, when your dad or would you guys start doing classes because Morel Metalsmiths is, I mean, before COVID, before the pandemic, there was. I mean, you do teach classes and you yeah. have a big community. Yeah. When did you guys start doing classes and stuff? Because it because that's once again like I feel like I feel like your father had a big influence on that because because he had you and I'm I'm just making complete speculation here right because you were so interested as a young boy and all of a sudden it's just like well maybe maybe other people be interested I can think that would be the reason yeah actually the first class that we that Morel Metalsmiths taught uh, I'm not going to be able to remember the year because I'm horrible with dates but we were in Brattleboro. I was 18 or 19 at the time, maybe a little younger, 17, 18, 19, somewhere in that range. And just up the road from our old shop is a, is a college. What it used to be there. It's no longer a college anymore. Uh, It was called Marlboro college and Marlboro college was one of those liberal arts colleges where you go and you get an advisor, and you pick your degree, you work out all of the things with your advisor, and then you work through your degree. But it's like a it's like a, a, a right. name-your-own-story book, you know, the ones where you pick the ending. Um, and a student from up there came through the front door of the shop, and he was like, hey, my name's Telman. I'm studying Mongolian shamanship at Marlborough College. And Mongolian shamans were blacksmiths, and I'd like to learn blacksmithing. Is that something do you guys teach? Have you ever taught? Would you be interested in teaching? And, you know, he's, Telman was, at the time, Telman walked, when he walked in the door the first time, he had, I think he had four eyebrow rings, uh, the one through like the bridge of the nose, a great big one through the sacrum of his nose, and a couple of lip rings. And uh, so he's got metal all I'm, I'm over like his face, all over the yeah, face, not, you know. Like, no, I don't think. And uh, I, I'm, at this point, when he walks in the door, I'm pretending I don't speak English. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, he goes, you know, they, my dad and he work out. He's like, okay, if you go back, you find th- two more people to do a class. This is what it's going to cost. And uh, and that was that. And tell me, just before he left, he looked at my dad and he said, both of us, because we were both standing there, and he goes. And he gestures to his face. He's like, is this going to be a problem? You know? And, and I kind of chuckled and I went, it's not going to be a problem for me. But the first time that nose ring heats up and bounces against your upper lip, it's going to be a problem for you. <laughs> and when he shut up for class, he didn't have, he didn't <laughs> oh have any God. metal in his face when he shut up for class. Um, <laughs> You know what? God bless your dad for like like seeing this maniac and not you know just like closing the door and pretending to you know speak right. a different language. Right. I mean, and as a result, like I taught I taught a six week class. Uh, it was him, Telman, and it was uh, a young lady who was doing um, timber framing, and her boyfriend who was doing fi- like finished car. Uh, he was doing not finished carpentry. He was doing. Uh, like furniture, woodwork furniture. And they all, they, like those two wanted to work out making tools and he wanted to make, my Lord knows, I don't remember exactly what, he ended up making a, a hanger for his didgeridoo. Um, which, which, it came out, it came out pretty good. Um, but he, uh, he didn't end up 
get it. He didn't he didn't graduate with a degree in Mongolian shamanship because he realized that he had to travel Whoa. an hour and a half to fu- to the to the nearest library that had any information about it. He had to translate it from Mongolian to English in order to study it. He was like, this is ridiculous. And he found a different degree to do. Yeah. I was like, okay, that, that tracks. I mean, that is the most, I mean, Mongolian shamanship seems like, I mean, I mean, that seems like a real, very specific thing. I, I would imagine it would be very like, you know, you got to come up with that in like some sort of like drug fever <laughs> in order to figure that major out. I don't think that is like, I, I can't see that being on like the list. You know, you got to be in like some sort of fever. Yeah, right. So the class is working out and you, yeah. you decide to really kind of like do more of it? Or? Well, at that point, it's it was a slow startup. Um, so that class happened and then I went away to Texas and then I came back. And it was shortly after that that we started, it was like four or five students at a time. I think it was four students at a time in Brattleboro. And uh, this six-week class and my dad was doing at as well he was doing a welding instruction a welding class out of that around that same time um and you know that was like that was really the start of it and and we just it wasn't it was so hit or miss we just like oh let's we got a lot of people in this list let's throw together a class see who can come and uh and then just before the pandemic, it was like we were doing, I think, nine one-day classes a year and five beginner classes, beginner six-week classes. Um, and we That's were up to – yeah, we were doing – it was 10 students per one-day class with two instructors. Um, and then the six-week class, we were doing eight students with two instructors – so it was, it was a lot of people in the shop, but it's just so much fun, like watching people figure this stuff out. And like, even if they, you know, one of the things that, one of the things that I, that I look at it as I'm like, okay, so all of these people are, are, they're learning how to blacksmith, but you know, a very small percentage of those people are going to end up going out, buying a, all of the stuff and actually blacksmithing. But every single right. one of those people is going to appreciate what I do much, much greater. You know, you're, you're actually, it's, I, I look at the one day class as more of a, I'm educating the public as to what blacksmithing is so that when they look at something that a blacksmith makes, they don't go, well, why does it cost so much? They know why it costs so much, right. you know? And that's a right. huge thing. And it, I, I just, I really... And then when, you know, you know, speaking of, speaking of places, I'm going to give a shout out. Is that all right? You please. Okay, good. I'm going to give a shout out. So when, when, uh, when my brother was really like, when my brother just came on and he was really kind of pushing to be a part of the shop and, and, and learn more. One of the first things that I did was I sent him up to the New England School of Metalwork and uh, he took their intermediate class. I mean, I knew he knew how to do most of the stuff. But just having somebody else get their hands on him and teach him a little bit, he had so much fun, and they do such a good job up I th- there. I think, you know, I think that 
you know, I am a huge proponent of school mm-hmm. because I mean, obviously, I mean, I was, I got, I was, I fell into luck by working at the, at the Center for Mental Arts. I had no idea, you know, and I think that you know the Center for Mental Arts now and New England School of Metalwork, they're just, I mean. You can't get better education or Morel Metalsmiths. You're going to real metal shops. Right. And you're going to working with skilled instructors. You just can't learn the finesse that it takes. Like there's all, there's just feeling too. There's feeling of feeling how the steel hits, feeling how the how it how it feels through the hammer into your hand. There's so much tiny finesse things that yeah. you can't learn on YouTube. And it's just I, I I'm a I we pump them up as often as possible. So the New England School of Metalwork, I mean, I know that they've changed some. They're they're having a the pandemic was real hard on them. Oh yeah. And I know that they're trying to do classes more. And you know, obviously, there's hammer-ins are like you know you can't have hammer-ins anymore, or you couldn't. Right. And I think that they're trying to figure something out. Well, the New the but, New York uh, group yeah, just I mean, had their first one over to Shokin this last weekend. Like they all got together. So it's happening. It's happening. That's right. That's right. They're coming back. That's right. No, it's good. It's it's you know I I think that one of the interesting things to me, especially because on Knife Talk we just did a uh, we hosted the Damasteel Chef Knife Invitational because they normally have it and and basically it's like you know twenty or thirty knife uh, knife makers that they they ask to make chef knives from Damasteel, which is like stainless Damascus made from Sweden. Mm-hmm. And they, because they normally do it in Chicago, they obviously couldn't do it. They created this virtual space and this virtual event and it was free and you, you know, that you had booths, but you know, you'd go from place to place. Right. And it was an amazing, it was an amazing way. And I was thinking about you. I was thinking about a band. I was thinking about these hammerings because there's, a global there's such a global reach to blacksmithing I mean, we talk to people blacksmiths and bladesmiths from all over europe all over australia all over i mean from the philippines knife makers from the philippines all this and it just seemed like this really great way to connect because when I, when i i joined abana a long time ago when there was really like you know a few thousand members mm-hmm. and there wasn't really a way and this is just on the cusp of facebook there wasn't really a way to connect with other people and I've, I've, one of the things, especially with the pandemic, I loved these virtual things because it's no longer people from the tri-state area who can make it to you, you know? Right. And I know that, I know that, you know, people would come fly. I'm sure that people would fly from all, you know, real hardcore people would fly. And people would used to fly from all over the country to go to the Center for Mental Arts. And I'm sure they'd do the same thing for the New England School of Mental Arts. But the, the ability to have this kind of global connection with, um, virtual stuff it's just it's something that um, I was fascinated by I'm real fascinated by it so you're you're now I know that you couldn't teach classes and stuff like that and you hopefully things kind of like you know I mean Pat Quinn is doing an incredible job in oh, terms yeah. of COVID um, super COVID impressed pro- with what he's know, doing protection. he and I talked about it but at the same time it's like his kind of like his clean his his re- regime is you know the the covid uh, protocols he's put in place has been real impressive and i'm, I'm under the impression the same thing's going on in doing the school of metal work i know that i saw you know nick ross he was teaching some classes with masks on and they were mm-hmm. very very careful and which is great when you when you look at 
I, I just think, I, I, when did you guys decide, you because your dad is the president of Vanna, mm-hmm. you're the president of New England, uh, Blade, Blacksmiths. Mm-hmm. When did you guys decide to take that step and become part of this bigger community? Um, my dad took that jump when, like, it was just after he retired fully um, from from the shop. He was looking at it, and uh, I I want to say he felt like the presidency could be more than what it was. I think that's a soft way of putting it. And uh, yeah, and I understand what you're saying. Yeah, so he threw his hat in the ring for that. Um, and, and I think, I think there are a lot of things that have been good out of that situation. Um, yeah, you know, there's certainly been a couple of hiccups, uh, you know, COVID didn't help things with, uh, canceling our, our meet last year, but, uh, right. you know, you know, I think that's when he threw his hat in that ring. Uh, he's been, he was the, the treasurer for knowing a blacksmith for years and was doing a great job there. Uh, he is no longer because now he's got so much going on with Havana. I tell people that my dad retired from blacksmithing and now he's the president of Havana and is working more. He's working harder for free than he ever worked before. Um, I can imagine <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, I can't imagine it's, it's, it's amazing. I, I think he actually has an office. And he spends, I want to say he probably spends four hours a day working on a band of stuff. I'm like, that's insane. You're working for free. But it really, like, I, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing changes in the organization that are making me hopeful for the organization. And, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a big thing. Because it has been stale for far too long. Uh, and it needed... It needed a couple of hiccups like it had, and it needed to be shaken up a little bit. And, you know, I'm super excited about the fact that they now have, you know, they have a location where you can go visit them. You know, that's not, you know, I think their mailing address was like 50 miles past the last, the last stone and the dirt road in, I don't even remember where their, their head office was. It was like, if it was it was nowhere. You couldn't get there. It was a P.O. box. And uh, now they actually have a location in Johnstown where people will be able to go and see some of the collection that Havana owns, which is huge. Um, and and actually, like, the, visit the history that is there. You know? And that's that's never been for that, for that organization. It was... I mean, it, it seems like before virtual is cool, Abana was a virtual organization. <laughs> Before we had internet, right. they were still yeah, virtual. Really virtual. Yeah, because um, you're in a you're coming out of a coming out of a PO box. That's right. as virtual as it is. It is get much more virtual. You know, jeez, um, but myself with uh, with New England blacksmiths, um, the the president before me, um, he decided he wanted to retire. Because he'd been doing it for 10 years. And uh, I was approached by our vice president, Bob Menard, who's also our editor. And he said, hey, I think you should uh, I think you should apply for that job. You know, put your name in the ring for that. And I 
I was like, okay, well, I'll talk to my wife about it. So I talked to my wife about it, and she was like, I mean, you've never been the, you've never been in an organization like you've never been a part of a board before. You've never been. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Bob said he'll help me through, and uh, so I threw my hat in the ring and I got elected, and now I'm on my, she's I'm going on six years now, five years. I don't know. Wow. It's it's been, it's been a while, and it's been. It seems. Go ahead. It, it's it's been interesting, you know, when you've never been on the board of anything, you you have to learn how to run a meeting. It's 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 a little stressful, to say the least. <laughs> what what one of the things that it interests? I mean, it se- it seems as though the both of you, you and your father, have this have much more of this traditional style of an understanding of the importance that this community has. I mean, I used to, I make jokes all the time about just blacksmithing in general because I love it so much and because it's, it's, it's really relegated to, you know, I, I mean, I think that the blacksmith arts and the art is what's art and stuff like that. You end up with like weight. It's so speculative that there's definitely two different kind of factions and having this older group and this younger group, there always is going to be this, you know, this headbutting of concepts. I love the fact that, you know, you and and there's other people on the boards of Abana that are younger and they're kind of taking advantage of. This. I, I just there's such a revitalization. It seems as though that they're, you know, even all the problems that they've had is, you know, ultimately those are growing pains that are positive. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of the whole growing pains thing is that, you know, it sucks at the time, but it, it does help in the long run. Like if we never had growing pains, we'd never get taller. So, you know, it's, it's it's true, (laughs) but it it doesn't make it suck any less in the meantime. No, of course. But what, why do you think you and your dad have such this sense of community? Because I mean, the both of you are the presidents of the two big organizations around. It's like it's clearly you have this sense of, you know, the your help being important. And I just it I'm you're kind of doing things above and beyond what benefits you. What gets you there? I mean, what the the part that gets me there is I like I said, I mean, the the first blacksmith blacksmith meet that my dad went to was in 79, so I was 1. And then from the time that I was, I think, six or seven, he was bringing me to blacksmith meets. So I've been going to the New England blacksmith meets since 85. Um, Hmm. And as a result, like, I, I mean, I grew up around, you know, Bill Gitchner and Bud O'Gear. And Bill Gitchner was the Gitchner family ironworks and they built a lot of the fencing around the white house. Like that was one of their big claims to fame, but they did huge amounts of ironwork all over the country. And Bud O'Gear was another one of our members and he was the master tool and die maker for GM. And this, the stories these guys tell. And I grew up around these guys. Like these, these guys are legends. And there I was just, snot-nosed brat didn't know any better so like i think that you 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 feel that sense of community because it 
really is the community. Like that's, if we don't help each other out, then nobody else is gonna. So how, but how do we, I mean, those two people and those two people and what they've done, mm-hmm. it's extraordinary. How do we lose, how do we lose sight of all of it now to the point where we don't, I mean, I just, I, what drives me crazy is there's such a loss of information and it's what I love about social media is you're showing people things that you can be that can be done when you whoever you're looking at, you you you're seeing stuff that can be relearned and and it's like it's almost as if like all this information was buried because I mean we don't really know I mean a lot of most knife makers or blacksmiths don't really do a lot of railings they don't really understand what it takes in order to do these big jobs nor what is it going to take to to bring it back it's a too hard of a question that's a that's, that's a, a big question that's a big that's question, big question. Well, um, I mean that, uh, but i mean it seems as though that that's what you and your dad are trying to do i mean that I, all i can think of is what you and your dad are trying to do is very altruistic it it is but i'm not trying to teach people how like how to do the big things i'm trying to teach them how to pay attention to the little things does that make sense like it doesn't, keeping, it doesn't matter. Yes, it doesn't matter how, 100%. it doesn't matter that you're, you know, you're doing a, you know, a 500 feet of railing or whatever. You have to pay attention to that little spot because if you don't pay attention to that little spot, the whole thing's going to be wrong or the whole thing's not going to look right. You know, it, it's, it, you have to, like, I'm, I'm not, I, I guess, I guess I'm, you know, you say, how do you teach people how to do all these great big things? It's like, well, I teach them how to do this little thing and I teach them how to do this little thing. And then eventually they can put all of those little things together. They have the toolbox to, to then pull from and build the big thing. So I don't necessarily mean teach them. Right. I mean more along the lines of how do we, how do we keep the information alive? alive? How do you keep the mention information alive? Because like nowadays, you know, I, what I love about social media is, you see people who are doing things that you've not probably not seen before. You, I mean, I'm wearing a fire forge shirt right now. You're right. Looking at, you know, oh my Peter gosh. Braspinix yeah. and what he's been able to, you know, his ability to take old concepts, old school concepts, and then cr- turn it into these it's, modern versions of what it's extraordinary. It's blowing. You guys like that, you see this stuff and you're just like, how can we do more? How can, I, I, I have this, such a love of this craft and we're, we're just, I feel like we've, we're just touching the surface. Yeah. Most people are touching the surface in regards to what can be done. Yeah. I love the fact that you and your dad are trying to keep this alive. You're taking it upon yourself to do that. Yeah. Chase, now I'm feeling overwhelmed. Thanks. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I mean, listen, how many families have two presidents on, two presidents in the, you know, who are, you know, with the same last name? I mean, this is like... You know, we're talking about the Roosevelts here. I mean, I, I just, I just think that I, I think that it clearly you guys have some sort of like underlying, you know, responsibility. Uh, obviously, I don't. I was asked to be a member. I'll tell you a funny story. So when I moved to the town that I'm in, it was, it was, it was one of these towns that was not doing well, big drug town. And then somebody uh, in the government said, "Hey, if we try to kind of." make this an artist community then we can kind of like get artists come up and when artists come up they they bring culture and then when they bring culture then they bring business and 
And they try to legislate this, you know, artist community in this town. So when we moved up here, I had heard that there was a big artist community. So I, so I wanted to like get involved with the organization. And they were just a bunch of old geezers. Mm-hmm. I used to make jokes saying, this is a very, this is a very inside joke, but there's a school in Manhattan called the Parsons School of Design. And I used to meet all these old retired Parsons School of Design teachers and they were all just like insufferable. <laughs> so I would just say that this organization in my town was just filled with old Parsons School of Design teachers who were just like want their hands held. So when I had the opportunity to, you know, apply to be in a show, they were just like very dismissive of me. I mean, I, obviously I wasn't, I was new and I was new to this town and who did I think I am? I didn't pay my dues. And I was just like, fuck. The, I mean, and he screw these people. <laughs> and then I found a space. I found a space in town that was this beautiful, uh, there was this weird, beautiful hallway in this, in this, um, it was in this theater. It was a very narrow hallway and they would do these shows where they'd put these they'd put these paintings against the wall but you couldn't it was so narrow you couldn't back up to look at it and i thought how could you activate this show and i had this idea to make you know actually make kind of sculpture kind of popping out and back so when you saw the work down the hallway all this stuff was kind of undulating back and forth the work was the way that i put the work up and i was just had this idea i was just like let's activate this space so when you walk through it, it it has some kind of meaning and i ended up finding you know 18 other artists who had been like you know thrown away from this organization and then it was the most successful show that get the uh that had ever come through the um the 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 debt uh, theater and it was actually used in some grant proposals from for the city and and then all of a sudden this organization this uh, artist guild contacted me and they immediately without being a member I basically gave them the middle finger to them I was like you don't need me I don't need you either and they and they nominated me to be the president <laughs> and when I I was just like and then I they not I I was so against them but they thought maybe there's some new blood in here he's got a good he did it himself he knows how to you know curate he knows how to organize so he went to the first meeting and the uh, former president was who the one who had nominated me and i went to one meeting i'm listening to these people and i i had to stand up and i relinquished my nomination in front of all these people i can't do it i can't i can't hold your hands mm. and it was like this it was like i had this opportunity to bend my will to this organization it was going to be like and i was doing it out of spite i was doing it out of like you don't like me i'm not going to be a president and you're not going to have anything to do and i was i was going to go in there out of spite and then i was just like looking at these people and i'm just like i just can't i can't i can't do this for you i can't do this for you so when i look at you and your dad i think they're such better people than I am. They're such, I'm, I'm such a piece of garbage. I was just like, I can't hold these nerds' hands. This is outrageous. These people are awful. I, I don't want anything to do with it. It's going to be too much complaints. It's going to be too much complaining about Fader. And when this kid comes in, he thinks he knows everything. I was just like, I, I stood up and I said, I appreciate the nomination. I am going to uh, bow out. Or I just walked out. I don't remember what it was, but it was just like, <laughs> I can't, I, I can't, I have nothing, to, I can't have anything to do with this. So when I, especially after meeting you and, you know, you were so, you've always been so generous with your time and energy. All I can think of is like, you just must have to deal with such nonsense. I can only imagine the nonsense you and your old man have to deal with with, between uh, Abana and uh, the New England blacksmiths. I can only imagine. They. Come on. 
there, there really the there really isn't that much nonsense <laughs> like really it's just like really i mean th- there i mean there's a well in the in in my organization i can't speak for my dad's because i'm sure that there's some nonsense going on over there oh yeah but we got to give him a few drinks to get him uh, on this podcast <laughs> Yeah. Come on, Justin. Um, Lee, have a couple pops and then we'll tell it how it is. <laughs> All of a sudden, he's not going to be so generous. No. Nope. All of a sudden, it's going to be like, well, now that you asked. Well, since you asked. No. <laughs> yeah. he's Since you asked. I, I think he's too good a politician to have that work. Um, Like, he, he, he knows, like. I can be pretty persuasive. Yeah. But, but honestly, with, with New England blacksmiths, I don't. Like, I don't think there's a whole lot of, like, it's really a pretty, There, I mean, there was years ago, but that's because the president had a chokehold on the organization and it would, they wouldn't, they wouldn't let anybody do anything. And that, it just wasn't Hmm. that there was a, there was a time in all organizations when, when that's the thing. But, you know, nowadays, like we've got a pretty active board and, you know, I've got a great vice president. He does everything. I don't have to do anything. I just Bob Bernard's yeah, a good dude. He's incredible. Bob Bernard's. I tell you, I gotta. I want. I want to break Bob Bernard's chops a little bit. Mm-hmm. Bob Bernard listens to all the pot. Listens to Knife Talk, and he'll send me. He'll send me some. <laughs> I. I want to. <laughs> number one, I have to make an admission. I have to make an admission and an apology. And before this episode airs, I will have. I will have fixed my my issue. My issue is, is I'm not good at paying bills and <laughs> I'm not good at it. So instead of getting, so I became a member when, after I met you, I became a member of the, the new England blacksmiths. I got the swag. I got the Morel metalsmith swag, which I love. And then I joined the NEB and then I lapsed, I guess. And all of a sudden in my DMS, Bob Menard, the vice president, used to do these like he would make a joke about something that i had said and then slip in by the way hey i notice you haven't paid your bill <laughs> i notice you haven't paid your bill you upped your membership is everything okay and then i'd be like yeah everything's okay i'm just uh, not good at paying bills oh boy. and then i think he did it again i think he gave me a, you know what you should do you should pay your me- you should pay your membership fees or i won't i'll leave you alone but it was like it was hilarious because i was just like bob i, I i'll pay up so i'm going to apologize to you and bob i give bob a lot of credit because he went out of his way to remind mm-hmm. me that I am uh, a terrible, terrible member, and when before this is up, I will renew my membership for sure. All right, that sounds good. We're actually we're I promise you, you should because we're having a we're gonna have a meet in uh, a, a hammer and meet up at uh, at our location in Brentwood, New Hampshire, in September. Um, and it's gonna be pretty epic. So, you know, you should up your membership and come to the meet. Because if you haven't, I would suggest all the listeners of this podcast join the NEB. Oh, absolutely! Because they do send out lots of newsletters, and it's really kind of a neat it's a it's a neat operation. So here's the question I have for mm-hmm. you: The president of the NEB obviously can't speak to your dad. We got to get him on. We got to get a few pops in him, and we got to <laughs> loosen him up a little bit. I think he's pretty loose, I'm sure. But I mean, you know, a couple pops ain't gonna hurt. It wouldn't hurt. Let's say, let's say. 
you have all the money that you need to do what you want within reason. Let's not talk. We're not talking like millions and millions and millions. We're talking about what, how would you change? What would you add to the New England blacksmiths to, to help you in terms of bringing blacksmithing to the modern day? How, how, what would you do? Within reason, I don't think we can do this within reason, but um, our we have a teaching facility over in Brentwood that uh, our members, uh, it's available to our members for a small fee once a month, twice a month now, sorry, the first and third Saturdays of every month from March till October, I think is when it runs. Uh, and we have people that show up every, you know, twice a month to help teach our members and help them better themselves. Uh, I think I would probably, I would expand our teaching center. Um, and, you know, I, I know that one of the hard things about running a blacksmithing school is that it has to make money because like, right. like with New England school, I mean, their, their backer is Maine Oxy. And so, you know, uh, Derek has got to, he's got to prove himself all the time that this is worthwhile so that Maine Oxy keeps paying for his, the, the, for that space. And so I think probably being able to fund, like to fund New England school of metalwork so that they can feel a little less pressure with their teaching um, to be able to like fund a place like that so that they can then just, you know, it, it'd be like endowing it, I guess, so that they can right. expand the community. Keep going. If we expand the community and that knowledge base for the community, then we're just bettering the community. And I mean, that's never going to hurt. Do you, do you do a lot? Do you do a lot with uh, with Derek, I, uh, Derek, and the guys at uh, New England? School? I don't. Um, I would love to do more. Um, you know, I've got two kids of my own, so it's hard to stop and take a class. But I have taken a class up there, and it was it was spectacular. Um, I took a class up there. I was I was gonna think. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was thinking more along the lines of like the NEB. Yeah. Like, is no. the NEB very involved with them? Oh, is NEB involved? Uh, to an extent, like we, we, they, they're members. So we advertise there. I think we advertise with, for them in our newsletter. Um, but I think, you know, I don't think we do enough. I think that we could do more, um, for them and for other, there are other schools. Um, there's another school over in New Hampshire that, I mean, Jesus called uh, Greenfield Forge over in Greenfield, New Hampshire. Um, and he's been teaching for years. Yeah, he calls me up the other day and I'm like, Hey, how you doing? He's like, Hey, I've got this school over here. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. You should be a member of New England blacksmith so that you, you know, we can advertise for you. And he's like, I am a member of New England blacksmith. I'm like, huh? Okay. So I, I, he's just like, he's been there for years and I had no idea. And so now he's advertising in the newsletter. I'm like, well, it's about damn time. You should be taking advantage of this. Um, you know, that's a, so like things like that, like being able to, being able to help those schools. Um, I'd love to be able to expand our, our, uh, our scholarship because we have a scholarship that's pretty decent. I mean, we do a couple people, 500 bucks a year. 
uh, to take classes. And I think it, I think it could be better. I think we could do more with that if we had more money. So, so what are the things you want to do in order to make more? I mean, what are what are some of the game? What's your game plan? I'm, I I I know that there's some. You have some plans you're going to hatch. What's What's next for the New England School of of uh, New England New England Met Blacksmiths? <laughs> what's next for? Uh, you got something going we, on. We like really we've we're tr- working on expanding and growing our meats and the draw for our meats. I mean, our meats. Five years ago, like a spring me to be like 90 people, a fall me to be like 55 people. And in the past years, the last meet that I held at this shop was a fall meet and we had 155 people here. And so we're, wow. we're growing in that regard. And this, I mean, this meet in September at, the, at Brentwood is going to be, like I said, it's going to be epic. I think there's going to be lots of people there. Um and the you know we do an iron in the hat that is just over the top. Um, what's that? What's the iron in the hat? So iron in the hat is yeah. everybody. So everybody can bring something to donate. Um, all of the people that are doing tailgate sales have to donate something, and it's set up the entire weekend. You buy tickets and you put it in the cup for the thing that you want, and then you the, every cup is drawn. And whoever wins that cup gets the thing. And this fall meet, Excellent. yeah, but this fall meet is going to be like, we actually have, I have been donated from one of my former students. He donated back a, a coal forge, a blower, and a leg vise that Morale Metalsmiths is adding a, an anvil to and... Judson Yegi, who's another blacksmith up in northern Vermont, is donating a set of tongs that he makes. So we've got a full forge that's going to be with one cup for this for this fall meet. So somebody's going to walk away with an entire shop out of this meet. That's amazing. It's going to be incredible. I'm so excited about it. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And we like our like our young our young demographic for our group is growing steadily and it's just so inspiring to see these kids that show up every meet and they you know they are just thirsty to learn more about this and it's so awesome to watch them progress year to year and meet to meet and to see them just like the 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 stuff that they're doing is just mind-blowing like the way they're progressing and the amount of knowledge that they've gleaned and what the, it's so cool to watch these kids. Like, I think that's why I teach. I, I love like, like my student, like Nick, who works with me now, like to watch him, like he did this class for the first time when he's 13 and he was just like, this is amazing. And then he just stuck with it Yeah. and he stuck with it. And now he's doing blades on the side and he's like, he's bought himself, he's got a full shop kicking around like he's bought himself a two by 72 and he's got himself a a welder and a and a propane forge and like he's got his whole shop but yeah that's he doesn't he's got his two by 72 here so we're all using it together which is amazing and uh you know just like watching these kids learn and just take off like i've got so many so many young kids that have taken my class that are just like this is it. Like their eyes get big and they're so excited about it. 
And it's just so inspiring to watch them and be like, yeah, come back whenever you want. I'll share more knowledge with you because it's just you deserve it. You deserve to have this knowledge because you are so excited about it. And it's just, I, I love that. I love that part of this whole thing. Like, it's just, ugh. I can imagine. It's, I mean, it is, there is something to be said about like having this transformation of material. Yeah. You know, it, it is this manipulation of mass. But it, to me, it's always more along the lines of it's, it's this inner discipline. Mm hmm manifests itself out into a visual object mm -hmm. like i'm convinced that i mean blacksmithing's changed my life and to the point where it gave me discipline that i really use as a analogy for life like yeah. i'm constantly thinking about you know when you put something in the forge before you put it in the forge you know what you're going to do when you pull it out of the forge you know what you're going to do you know that there are these steps that you have to follow in order to get what you want done in a way you want done. Obviously, it can't be the perfect all the time. But even after, you just you learn from that. But it's changed the way I process everything in terms of being very, very... I mean, the re, probably the reason why I'm, I am as organized as I am now later in life is because true blacksmithing, you need to be organized. You can't flop around. Yeah. I mean, you can flop around just to fool around. Right. But if you have a specific thing in mind, you have to be extraordinarily organized in order to make it to the end. That's why I love blacksmithing as much as I do. Yeah. Yeah, you really, I mean, and, and not just discipline till the end, but you have to be able to see the process through from the beginning to the end so that you can, otherwise you get halfway through and you're like, oh, should I should have done this first? And then you have to start over. You know, there's that whole like, it, it's it's focused, but it's also being able to project out so that you know, right? You know ahead of time what steps you have to do, which is why you wake up in the middle of the night. And you're like, oh, that's how I should do that. You know, you have that oh right. moment where you sit right. up and your wife's like, what the hell's wrong? Um, you know, it's just, yeah, it, it's a, it's an amazing it's an amazing it's art a, form. You know. It's just like it is extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. I love telling my students it's I mean it's just like it's just like working with clay. Like it moves just like clay, only it's 2000 degrees. And you can't go back. Sometimes you just can't Someday, go back. Sometimes you, know, you just can't go back. I, I, you can't smash it back into a ball. I'm sorry. A lot of time yeah. A lot of yeah, that's the one thing I, I used to always say. The similarities between blacksmithing and ceramics are very similar. Clay is very similar, except for the fact that you can't. You know, a lot of times, you know, you you only go in one direction, which actually makes it a little bit more. There's an excitement to it. Right. I mean, it's exciting with the fact that there you have to make very you have to make. There's not a lot of fooling around. I'll tell you one thing that drove me crazy is years ago I went to Sturbridge Village. <laughs> and it was, it was a family trip. My wife's family took me there. And they were like, oh, look, there's a blacksmith shop. Let's go in there. And I was just like, I don't think I should go in. No. And he, she says, why not? I'm like, I got a bad feeling. I'm going a bad feeling. I'm going to get angry. And their guy was there. And it wasn't my friend. It wasn't Lucky. It wasn't Lucky Nail Blacksmith. It was, a, it was a, somebody I did not know. Mm -hmm. and, and I'd never seen this guy before. But he had a huge group of people, and he had the he had that floppy hat on, he had the whole outfit going on, and 
his somebody was pumping the bellows and you know it was like and he would take this piece of like you know three-eighths round bar and he'd take it out of the coal and then he'd close one eye and look at it <laughs> and then he'd look at it and, and then he'd put it back in and i was like this is way worse than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and everyone's, whoa, ah. He just, he would take it in the kind of thing, and then he'd eyeball it and look down as if he was going to align it, you know? And it's just like, I know, I'm like, I got to burn this place to the ground. If you don't get me out of here, I have to burn this place to the ground. This is driving me crazy. And now I can't go back to these places. And I, I think I, I some, somebody, somebody in my wife's family hurt, got an earful from me. because I was just like, don't you cheer those no, guy no. in there because he's not doing anything. He's just heating a piece of steel up and putting it back in. Don't, don't, don't bring me into these places anymore. I can't take it. But that, I mean, that is the real thing about blacksmithing. That, Because I, I, like I said, back to bladesmithing, you know, the funny thing about bladesmiths, now or i don't even know if knife makers now Mm -hmm. is the blacksmithing part of making a knife is so tiny in the construction of the knife i'm not talking about damascus i'm talking about making damascus i'm talking about forging a piece of steel into the shape of a knife and then then you can go off into the heat treatment and stuff like that it's a whole different thing a lot of these guys are extraordinarily good at just making knives they have no experience doing tapers or scrolls or forging other things. And it's like you get these questions and, and it's like I think I think um, I'd heard Nick Rossi put a quote up from Peter Ross saying um, if you can't make, you know, you need to make in order to be a bladesmith, you really need to know how to be a blacksmith. And you need to know how to forge scrolls and tapers and really traditional things and kind of to get an understanding of how metal moves. And it was really spoke to me because my experience was being a blacksmith first. And then back when I was at the Center for Metal Arts, we there was there was no talk of ever doing Damascus. There was no talk about doing knives. And we hated it when people asked us if we made swords because we're just like, this isn't LARPing. You know, this is... This is we're making railings and doing real stuff. We're not fooling around with this knife business. Yeah. But there's this like there's this lack of willingness to understand that, you know, if you learn how to do even just like, you know, making leaves on a power hammer. Right. That's making a knife. Yeah. That's making a knife. Yeah. You know, you can make if you learn how to make finials, you know, that's making a knife. Right. I mean, that's the exact same manipulation of material pulling a heel down yeah. when you're making of a leaf. And it's like, you know, I, I just I, and, I'm interested in the fact that because because of Forge and Fire and because of more people becoming knife makers, they're not they're they're just kind of like staying away from the idea of taking these blacksmithing classes. Yeah, uh, you know, in the, the you know, in the smallest in the smallest arena of that uh, area of that, if you know how to blacksmith, you have an understanding how the metal moves, and therefore you can straighten a knife while it's being forged as opposed to it, you know, if it gets squirrely, some of these guys, they just no idea how to straighten it. You know, you, I, I, I right. just watching, uh, I'm just watching a, a, a bladesmithing video and you know, he's, he's forging, he's forging, he's forging under the power hammer. And then it's into the hydraulic press to straighten it or into the leg vice to straighten. It. And I'm like, maybe a couple little taps on the power on the anvil. And that's going to be straight. Instead, you're, you're running a piece of machinery or you're having a, you know, you're losing your heat in the vice. Like if you just, if you just learn how to just whack it with your hammer a couple of times, nice and gentle, it'll straight, it'll straighten out, you know, just control it in the meantime. I'm so 
people don't like it when I when knife makers don't like it when I when they ask me what kind of blacksmithing class what kind of blacksmithing projects they should do in order to become better knife makers. And I always tell them to make tongs. Oh yeah, they hate that. Yeah, they hate when I say to suggest making tongs because <laughs> they just like, and they don't understand that you're learning how to make two of the same thing. You're learning how to make the same thing twice, twice. and you're yep. learning how to replicate something twice. Yep. And it's the same thing, you're just doing it twice. And and you don't realize that the manipulation of the mass is how you learn how to... The big thing is, on Knife Talk, the number one blacksmithing question we get, forging question, is how do you pull the heel down below an integral bolster? Mm. And it's it's the number one question, and it's like... Depends on the material, and if you have square bars, it's gonna be different than if you have a piece of rectangle. And you know, it's yeah. how do you upset it? What's upsetting? And and it's just like it's a, speaking of upsetting, it gets upsetting because I wanted to tell these people, if you learn how to do blacksmithing stuff, not just bottle openers, mm-hmm. you will be able to answer your own questions. Right. You know. Yeah. Tooling, how you get, how you oh. fix problems that you, the, I mean, the problems that we hear are just like if you took a basic forging mm-hmm. class. The answer is right there. Yeah, yeah, know? and a lot of those, a lot of the problems that they're dealing with, if you know, five hits ago they had addressed that, it wouldn't be as big a problem now. But they went those five extra hits, right. and now it's a real big problem, you know. And it's it's just yeah. like it's seeing the problem coming as part of that being able to adjust the problem, you know, and that. If if you only ever if you if you never figure out how to address the problem, you're never going to see it coming. It's one of those. It's weird chicken and egg thing, right? Well, there's still a lot of there's still a lot of hope. You know, hope <laughs> is there's too much too hope much hope with a lot of people. If I hit it five more people, times, oh, I yeah. hope it'll work. Never does. I hope I didn't. I hope I, I didn't, hope I didn't it forge up. it too thin. I hope I didn't find, you know, <laughs> hope is everyone's a little bit too, uh, there's a little bit too much hope going around. Yeah. And if you just take some blacksmithing classes, you would be much, you would have to depend on hope a lot less. Hope sucks. And that's the reason why making tongs is so great because you know if they're right. Yeah. Because they have to be the same. Yep. And all of a sudden it trains you making a pair of tongs. It's tra- It's training you how to... Um, look at the same thing, making it twice, and then if there's a problem, you adjust both to work to work well together. I just it gets me a little crazy because like there's a little bit too. I mean, I'm very I'm interested in what you have to say about Forge and Fire. I have a love hate relationship with Forge and Fire, and the hate comes from people asking me if I've been on Forge and Fire. The love <laughs> comes from the fact that people have something, people have something to to look at on TV the show's forging. Because there's normally, I mean, yeah. Jesse James did welding back in the day, but there's never been another show where you actually see somebody forging. Right. And I, I for that reason, I know it drew, I drove, it drove up, Jesse Savage told, tells me all the time how forging fire drove up the costs of uh, anvils, like up the wazoo. Well. You know, but at the same time, it's like, go do ahead. Do you know what else it did? You 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 remember Go do ahead. you remember hearing about the guy so there was a guy in in New York City who decided he was going to do bladesmithing because of forged in fire set himself up a, a shop in the basement of a building and then burned it to the ground and wait and, this isn't the guy up in your Albany no that was on the this show the guy near Albany no that was burned his town down maybe it was 
But any, but as a result, yeah, don't say New York City. Okay. No one's. I, I don't remember where it was. So to be honest, it was in New York, but I don't remember where in New York. To be honest, I mean, I mean I'm from New I'll England. Everything's funny. New York City, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you a funny but, story. The only reason why I know it was in Albany is because everyone called to see if it was me. Okay, so so as a result of that, <laughs> as a result of that fire, liability insurance for a building, you know, as a business, I have had three different insurance companies in the past three years because getting insurance for my business now is ridiculous because they're like, oh no, you're too high risk. You're going to, really? you're going to burn the place to the ground and they, nobody will cover me. And I mean, I've been around for a long time. We've never had a fire, really? but nobody wants to look at me anymore. Thanks fortune and fire <laughs> or that guy. Anyway, it wasn't you really, fortune that, fire. You really attribute that I, to that. It was immediately after that you happened. You really attribute to that guy? I do because it was immediately after that, that all of a sudden, like, uh, all of these, the Hartford group stopped covering people, uh, and all these other, they, they all just dropped us. And I was like, oh, so one guy burns. It's like it, because it was a big thing. Everybody heard about it. And all of a sudden it was a, you know, there was he, more risk. This is it. But so you. At- I might have made a joke. I might have <laughs> made a, j- a joke that it was uh, Mike Cataldo. My our buddy. He listens to the podcast. Okay. Aggressive Metalworks. He's the man. My I, I might have said, I think it was Mike. I think this was in Albany. And I made a joke. I think it was Mike. But the dude. He was trying to. I think he was. I think that he was trying to uh, straighten something out over a barrel or something like that. Or he was using a wooden barrel to kind of straighten mm-hmm. something, and he lit the whole town on yeah. fire. He lit the whole. Yeah. T- he burned the whole town to the ground. And it's just like, come on, people. I mean, use your use your common sense a little bit, please. But uh, anyway, you did ask a question about fortune fire. Um, my yeah. my feelings about fortune fire my my i i get oh have you been on it all the time oh you right. should be on it uh all the time <laughs> and why haven't you been on it and like i think it's done i think it's done wonders for people paying attention to our industry like i think it really has right. i think it has really put put a face put us on the map in that regard, I, I I will not I will not speak ill of it in that regard. Uh, having never been on it, I can't speak ill of it in 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 its own right. But you know, I feel like I I find myself explaining to people like, oh yeah, everybody breaks their blade on Fortune of Fire, and I'm like, well, if you, if you think about it, and I'll and I'll actually take them to the back of the shop and heat up a piece of material, and then shine a flashlight on it. Um, and be like you're in your shop, it's dark where you normally work, so you know what colors the materials are. When you shine right. the all of the lights that it takes to film a pro, film the whole thing like they are, like all of the colors are gone. You cannot see them, and as a result, you're messing the material up, and you have no idea. Like, who? Right. You just it's like I've watched, I've seen, I've seen a couple episodes. I haven't seen a lot of it, but you know, I remember one of the guys that I watched do it. Like he was pulling his material out and holding it underneath the layout table, like looking at it under there and putting it back in the forge. Like I was like, oh, okay, that guy figured out how to do this, you know. And it's just having to explain to people like a little shadow, like yeah, get a little shadow so you can see what color it is. Like so much of our, so much of what we do is is color based. Like figuring out whether the piece is hot enough is color based. 
Um, and, and so that, you know, this whole show being in the bright, bright sun, being the, you know, the lights of the studio, they, they setting you up to, they're setting you up to break your blade as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah. but then I've got, you know, I've got another, I've got a friend up in Northern Vermont who's a bladesmith. Um, and, uh, you know, I asked him, I was like, have you, have you considered it? And this was shortly after the, the, uh, Claymore debacle where, uh, what's the guy's, the, the cutter guy, the, it will kill guy. I can't remember his name <laughs> anyway, where he, <laughs> Doug, Mark- yeah, Doug, Doug Mark- 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 where he, where he baseball bat swung the Claymore and wrapped it around the pig. And my buddy was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to base my career on him swinging the thing wrong. Like I'm not going to one swing. That guy's career is like, that's how do you come back from that? And it wasn't his fault. Like Doug Marquette yeah. swung that sword wrong. You watch it over and over again. If you got instant replay, it's called YouTube. He swung that sword wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and as a result, it, you know, it failed. It wasn't the blade's fault. So anyway, that's my, that's very interesting. So, because I've actually heard from a friend who was on, who told me that like, I, 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 he swung something that I made and it was like, it was all over the place. He's like, it, there was, this was not a, my issue. I had heard, I've yeah. heard something before, but regardless, regardless, Rick. I had, speaking of color, I was, um, when Ben Snoor was on, um, he sent me a message. He said, I had my worst, I had my worst nightmare happen when I was on Forge and Fire. And I'm in my mind, like, all I could think of was like, he must have been doing it outside. <laughs> He's like, I was, they had That's us right. doing it outside yeah. with cold forges, no tools oh outside. And all I could think of is in the sun, I was uh-huh. just like, oh, I don't think that there is a worse nightmare no. than having to forge out in the sun with no shade. I'm not done. Can't happen. Nope. It doesn't exist. Nope. It is, it's just not the way it's supposed to be. So, No. But at the same time, it's good that people see people doing. Yeah, it. you know what I mean. Yeah. But I, I, I do love, I do love following blacksmiths and bladesmiths and hoping that, you know, uh, I know that Pat Quinn and I'm hoping that uh, the New England School, you know, really kind of like jumps back from COVID and kind of really creates something. And especially you guys, obviously I'm a fan. I'm a fan of you and your whole family. I, I had, you know, last time I was there and we were going to, we would have been back last summer when I took my kid and obviously the camp was canceled. Right. And it was very sad because I was just like, oh, am I going to miss the morales? Cause I had a good time with your brother the last time I was oh, up. That's and right. It was just, I just, I appreciate, I appreciate what you and your whole family have done for the industry because it's more it's much more um giving to a community that needs being given to mm. because I, I feel like i always feel like it's such a tenuous thing and i i get i was talking to chris cash and chris cash said to me he's like why do you give everybody trouble for making bottle openers and i said because if you think that this is it <laughs> You, you, we're gonna never. This, we're never gonna. We're never gonna come back. If you think it's all bottle openers, we're never gonna come back. Um, obviously, you know it's great to make bottle openers, and it's great to kind of. I do. I do enjoy making them every so often. But I, I just. I always have my fingers crossed for the community, and I think a guy like you, and a guy like your dad, and and organizations. I make a lot of jokes about Abana, but at the same time. I'm always pulling for Abana and I'm always pulling for NEB because otherwise it's gone. Yeah. You know, I agree. 
Yeah, no, I and I feel the same way about a band. I'm like, you know, it really, like, it had something. It was really, really good back in the first, you know, the first several years of it happening. And they had some great meets, and they had some great demonstrators, and there was a lot of good energy. Um, and it's just like it's it's gotten it's gotten harder and harder to pull off a good meet because they as an organization put kind of a stranglehold on the people that are trying to put together a good meet. Like they've got so much stipulation involved in, in that aspect of things that it's, it makes it, it makes it harder for us as the consumer to get the best possible thing. Um, and that's, I, I think, God, I hope I didn't step out on a limb there. Uh, but I, I don't worry. You didn't say anything that bad. Trust me. No, you didn't say anything worse than anything okay, I've ever good. said. Trust me. No one's calling me up. Don't worry about that. Um, you know, I just I I feel like they need to, like, as an organization, in order to come in order to come further into this century, um, they they need to allow the art to move forward. And I feel like they are so steeped in tradition that they're not allowing for the growth that they could be. And I think that they're working towards that. I'll, I'll throw them a bone. I, I really do think that they are all pushing for bettering the organization in that regard and helping it, you know, helping it grow itself because they, they really like there have been past presidents that just strangle that organization. And, and, and I feel like, you know, I, I feel like it's going to be good moving forward. I feel like, you know, they, they are listening to more, a, a wider demographic now than they ever have. Um, you know, it, it really was, it really was an old white guy organization and, it needs to no longer be an old white guy organization in order for it to move forward. And I, and I think, Hmm. I think that they're working on that. And, um, and I hope, and I am hopeful that that will actually happen. I believe it will with guys like you at the helm, you know, and, you know, new board members of Abana and um, John Williams on the board of Abana and, younger guys who are just like doing amazing things. And look, I, I mean, I, I, I will, there's a bit we have on, on uh, knife talk, which is called, uh, you know what you should do. And it's unsolicited advice. And, and it's, it's, it's always just like obnoxious and I'm going to, I'm going to just do one. My, I would, I'm fucking loathe to do it. Pardon me. But I'm like, I have to, it's just like, I wish you guys, you, you guys were doing more on social media. That's the thing that, gets me crazy about the new england school of, of metal work too and i think that you know when you look at what uh and then when you look at what pat's doing down in the center for metal arts and these curated i just got the new catalog from the, the, the center for metal arts and everything is so well curated and i just part of me wishes i i just know that and i would be happy to help you however i can mm-hmm. if if there was any way to to push, because I'm in my mind, and I'm about to give you the, 
What's the uh, I got it. We're gonna have to close this down in a second. Mm-hmm. So you have ten minutes left, so I, we gotta close this down. I would love it if you guys did more social media, and I'd help you however you had because I feel like there's a there's a willingness from an international organization to be very supportive of you, and that's my, that's just my opinion. Yeah, and it's obnoxious that I said it, but I, I had no choice. Okay. You know, Justin Morrell is my friend, president of the New England Bladesmiths, owner of Morel Metalsmiths with his brother Evan and his dad. I'm so happy you were here. I've been looking forward to this for a while. I get a lot of messages from Jesse saying, oh, I'm really looking forward to what Justin has to say. And I was like, me too, <laughs> me too. And here he is. Uh, Thank you for coming on my podcast. You're always welcome. You're welcome. And anything I can do, Anything I can do to help you, you know, I've been in the tank for you for a long time. Yeah. Anything I can do to help you, and I will tell my listeners, don't listen to the jokes I make. Don't worry about the jokes I make. And, and, and join Abana, Join New England uh, Blade Blacksmiths. Become members because guys like Justin have things they have. They have plants. They got plans, and you want guys like this with plans to do it. Yeah. So for that said... That's very, very important. Join up. Yeah, I'm, but when I will be a full, I will be, I promise, I'm putting my hand up in the air and I will say, I'm going to re-up both. <laughs> Abana, I think, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what happened with Abana. I'm going to re-up with Abana and I'm going to re-up with NEB tonight. And I want my listeners to, too, because this is a great opportunity. And if we, if enough of us do it, maybe someone will start a NEB uh Instagram page. Hopefully, it will be Bob Menard. I would love to break Bob oh. Menard's balls way more often. And if he's doing, <laughs> and if he's running the Instagram page, I guarantee you, I'll be breaking his balls left and right, which will be a fun. Yeah, that'll be awesome. <sighs> this was a blast. Thank Jeff. you very much for coming in, Justin. I'm really glad. I I really appreciate your support. You've been sending me a lot of messages that I really appreciated in regards to this podcast, and I appreciate it. Guys, go follow Justin. is Justin Morell, or you can also on Instagram, Morell Metalsmiths. Go support NEB. Go blah, blah, blah. Go, Ibana, help them out. It's important. Blah, blah, blah. Sounds great. Next week, the next week we have uh, Joshua Prince will be here. And then I have a few other things coming up. I know... Uh, this is the 50th episode for the for the year ender, for the one year anniversary. It's going to be uh, 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 John Ariani and Cliff Dufton, and then Nico Tavernese is coming back. Jordan Lamothe is coming in. Um, I got a pile of guys. Matt Yazel is going to be in here this summer. I got a pile of guys, so we're going to have a lot of fun, and um, we'll see you next week, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks again, Justin. Thank you. The Full Blast Podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax an all-natural, food-safe wax for coating your handles. It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots, with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, if you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.